0: Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Over the past couple of years, uh, I've been asked this question that I don't think I've ever been asked before as a pastor, and it's come up pretty frequently, where people just ask, do you think the world is ending? Um, and it's a bit of a weighty question and I can tell by the look in people's eyes that they're not joking like there There's this sense of like is is Jesus coming back? Is this the tribulation is this? You know is this kind of the collapse of all that we know and Uh, and I think the reason that kind of question gets directed as a pastor Is because there has been uh, this heightened um uh, interest, maybe even obsession, with the, the kind of the theme of end times, and that has slowly started to kind of lose interest within the past ten years or so, but there's still a large contingent of people that are wrapped up with that. And when we kind of arrive at our text today in Mark chapter 13, Uh, Maybe you've already opened up and to see kind of where we'll be today. It looks very much like an end times chapter Sounds very much like kind of the end of the world and Jesus coming back And so we're gonna dive into Into that topic. But before we do we have to kind of set up how to read Mark chapter 13 because what Jesus does here is he shifts his teaching style Mark shifts his literary style to be what's called um, apocalyptic in its literature and in its presentation now apocalyptic literature is a genre or a subgenre of ancient literature the same way like poetry or historical narrative apocalyptic literature has a certain way of being written a certain way to be read and some of the trouble is that when we read through the bible and we get to apocalyptic literature we read it like historical narrative or we read it um, like a discourse and there's certain rules that apply to that genre the same way if you were to open up a newspaper you're going to read the comics differently then you read the sports section differently then you read kind of the journalism or the opinion section and so when it comes to apocalyptic literature just a couple of things to keep in mind uh, number one that the word ap- uh, apocalyptic comes from this greek word that means the revealing or the disclosure like you're you're revealing something that's to come Uh, The book of Revelation literally is, in Greek, is the apocalypse of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, how he's coming and ruling and reigning. And so it's revealing something. And how it does that is it uses these two mechanisms. One of them is hyperbole. And hyperbole is something we're familiar with. It uses big language, colorful language. But it's not just to exaggerate something. The language it's using is specific, because it's actually trying to draw emotion out of its readers. So it's trying to match the emotion with what they're seeing. But it, they also use this tactic called metaphor, where oftentimes what they're seeing in the future, they don't have reference for it in their time. So they're using kind of the, the world around them. So it's kind of like this, and it looks like this And so they'll use common uh, kind of things of their day to describe what they're seeing in this revelation. And so Jesus takes up this form of communication to start talking about this coming event. And he uses colorful, big, sometimes dramatic and scary language, not, not so much to be taken um, In its most literal sense but to be read as you're supposed to read apocalyptic literature you're supposed to let it hit you the words are supposed to draw motion up out of you and then to ask the question what is what are these metaphors what are these things pointing towards now the hard part about Mark chapter 13 is it uses both metaphor but it also talks about things very uh, descriptively as well but here's what's interesting is This is one of those chapters that really, really smart, godly people vastly disagree on. At first, read through, like the first time I read it without ever looking at commentaries, things like this, I'm just, I'm looking at this like the end of the world. But interestingly enough, most scholars actually believe that this chapter is not talking about the end of all things. It's actually pointing towards an event that would happen 30 years after this was written, 20 years after this was written, and it's the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and we'll get to that. And people vary on, on, on that. N.T. Wright, for example, believes that none of this is talking about the return of Christ. Most people, including other people like R.T. France, believe that Most of Mark chapter 13 is talking about this event that's going to happen in about 20 years' time. That is is stunningly accurate. But towards the end of the chapter, it kind of shifts gears and it talks about Jesus' return. And that's kind of where in my research and study kind of where i landed this is talking about both something that's happening right now it's talking largely about something that's about to happen a concrete event and then it ends with talking about jesus's ultimate return so just a little bit of setup as we dive into this chapter because otherwise it can be a bit confusing and overwhelming Uh, but more importantly than than how to dissect this passage ultimately the goal is this what does that mean For how i live today in my context what is this supposed to produce in me because when jesus was telling his disciples this and when he passed on to the early church it was for the reason for them to live a certain way and so as we're reading this really the the deeper question we need to ask is how does this change how we live today and so we're going to be looking at three different themes that this passage pushes us towards. Number one, that we are called to stand in our love for Jesus. Number two, that we are s- supposed to be devoted in our faith to Jesus. And lastly, we are supposed to be watchful in our hope toward Jesus. So we're going to be diving into the, the first uh, first 13 verses here. So as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And by the way, the stones that Herod used to build that second temple were massive. You can go see some of them that are still kind of on the ground level. They're limestone. some of them as large as a bus or a van. They're huge. So you can imagine them leaving and they're looking at the human ingenuity and they're just saying look at rabbi look at all that has been built maybe even with a sense of pride or arrogance like look how far we have come do you see all these great buildings jesus replied not one stone here will be left on another every one will be thrown down as jesus was sitting on the mount of olives opposite the temple peter james and john and andrew asked him privately Tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still not to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines These are the beginnings of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses in them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Wherever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what you are to say. Just say whatever is given you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit brother will betray brother to death and father his child children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death everyone will hate you because of me but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved now we've talked a lot about this series how this this gospel is written to the church in rome who is underneath immense violent persecution And when, when you keep that in view, what you notice is as they read this, the account of being turned over, being hated because of Jesus, brother turning against brother, and these wars and these rumors of wars going on, that original audience would have been like, this is my life right now. This isn't, this isn't revelation of what's to come, this is literally my reality. And so as they're reading this, we have to read this 2,000 years later, not so much of like what's going to happen and, you know, like what kind of website can I go on the Internet to figure out the exact times and dates because within this it says, listen, this is the beginning of birth pains. This isn't even the great, uh, this isn't even the event he's going to be talking about here in a few verses. Like, this is just the beginning of it. So the current uh, context of this, the current community of this, Is reading this and Jesus uh, in verse 13 says but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved now that word stand or stand firm are these two Greek words combined and it's the Greek word hypomeno and it comes with these two words hupo means of or by and meno means to abide or to remain the one who is of abiding of, of remaining And what's interesting about this word is it's this strong word that says, like, the one who doesn't give up, the one who remains faithful in the midst of this persecution, who stands in the midst of it. This Greek word is used another time, another few times in the New Testament. One of them, interestingly, is in the famous passage and chapter about love. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about how love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always hupomeno. It always stands firm, it always perseveres. So I think within the context of this Greek word, you have to stand firm. Paul takes that same word and says, this is the last word on love. Love is the one who stands firm which actually makes a lot of sense considering that Mark chapter 12 is when Jesus talks about the greatest commandment. You have to love the Lord with, from everything of who you are and love others as yourself. And later on he says, listen, when all of this crazy stuff is happening, you have to stand firm. And there's this sense of that we need to abide, to remain, to be connected to Jesus because of the storms that are going to come. And I think about that there's this test of our faith that oftentimes goes underneath the radar because of where many of us who are watching this live. That the level of persecution that we face because of our faith, if compared to the brothers and sisters around the world, is pretty limited. But I think because of that, there should be a hyper-awareness of are we remaining standing firm in our faith or are we being kind of lulled to sleep Martin Luther King, who was an example, a luminary of someone who stood firm in their faith and conviction in the midst of trial, said the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And I think this passage opens up with this plea to the early church and to the church from here on out. Stand firm. If you're watching this and you have felt your love for Jesus wavering, whether it's because of doubts, whether it's because of distractions, whether it's because of exhaustions or disappointments, I just think my simple exhortation to you from this passage is stand firm. Remain in him. Commit your love to him again and again. And whether it's Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa, Henry Nowin, if you just go down the list of these spiritual giants, these saints throughout history, it's not the ones who were able to stand firm when things were convenient, but the ones who were faithful in their love for Jesus, despite all of circumstances that were going on. The second passage here, I want to talk a little bit about the theme of being devoted to faith towards Jesus. And this is where it kind of takes a shift from what would be happening, what's going on, to something that's about to take place. And uh, we don't have the ability to read all the passage, but starting in verse 14, it says this, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, that's a strange phrase, unless you're really into the end time stuff. But that is a phrase taken from the book of Daniel. And... Most people believe that it actually happened when Antichus, the Greek ruler, took over the temple, which ultimately led to the Maccabean Revolt where he does pagan sacrifices in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. It was the abomination that creates desolation. Well, apparently Jesus is saying that's going to happen again. Standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then, then to let those who are in Judea Flee to the mountains. So when you see this, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is. Don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Be on your guard i have told you everything ahead of time skipping down to verse 30 says truly i tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened heaven on earth will pass away but my words will never pass away now again i pointed out that most people at first reading this assume that this is somehow describing some sort of scene with kirk cameron kirk cameron from the left behind movies that that we saw back in the 90s and All of a sudden we're kind of reliving this thing. But what's really interesting is that most scholars point out that Jesus' description of this event matches perfectly an event that took place 20 years later in the year 70 AD when the temple was absolutely destroyed. There was this war where this Jewish revolution came up and tried to fight against Rome and ultimately Uh, Rome came in and just destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. And that event was so significant in the life of Jewish history that to that point, where animal sacrifices stopped. And um, rabbinic Judaism began after that point. And so this was a massive turning point, which is very fascinating. And this was actually foretold by Jesus this event was going to be happening Uh, Josephus who is a Jewish historian who tells us about the event actually writes about it now listen to some of the words that he used again this is not from the Bible this is a non-Christian Jewish historian that's writing about the destruction of the temple and this is from his work he says besides these a few days after that feast on the one and 20th day of the month a certain prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were not related by those that saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds, and the surrounding of cities. Moreover, at the feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking, heard a great noise, and after they heard the sound as a great multitude saying, let us remove hence. And it goes on, but Josephus records this apocalyptic-like scene that very much mirrors what Jesus was predicting that would happen. And Jesus says this that a generation will not pass away until this happens. Now, some people view that word generation as the church or Israel or some type of version of Israel. But if you take that in the Jewish mindset, generation, for the most part in the Bible, means 40 years. So within 40 years, this event's going to happen. An event of that magnitude actually took place. And so as he's writing this, something interesting and again, if you disagree, that's, that's totally fine. I think the application here is still the same. But if this is pointing towards the destruction of the temple, or if it's pointing towards a coming, uh, coming destruction someday, the point is that Jesus says something. He says, look out for false messiahs. Look out for people pretending to be the anointed one who are going to come in my name. And I think the reason why this is so huge is because when things get intense, stressful, burdensome, fearful, our propensity as human beings is to look for a rescuer. We desire for someone to deliver us and therefore the danger of looking towards a false messiah increases. Uh, When we were in Hawaii a couple weeks ago on our way to Our hotel we're driving by the road and there's this guy sitting there uh, just kind of skinny dude on the wall and there's just this massive sign he painted himself and it says I am Jesus Uh, I don't don't know if I've ever seen someone just with that bold of a sign and we're driving by and and one of my kids is like what did that say I'm like "I, I think it says that he's Jesus now as as much as that caught my eye I have to admit there was zero temptation in my heart to go flip the car around to really go see if this is Jesus. And if someone were to come around and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm Jesus, I'm the Son of God, most of the time people, we're not going to pay that much attention to them, maybe even engage them. And so for us, the temptation is probably going to be less the guy holding the sign in Hawaii for us it might look like something else that presents itself as a savior that as things get intense i mean think about the last two years how intense things got people began to choose to different things to medicate things to make them feel escape things to make them feel secure things that ultimately what we desire is a sense of rescue something to come and provide order and peace in our life and so the question really is we read this passage is so like What happens? What other false messiah do you turn to? What are the other things in your life when things get intense, whether it's something like as epic and something as massive as the destruction of the temple, or uh, or if we think it's the end of the world, or what if it's just like life is hard and all of a sudden you want to go and you want to just binge uh, your favorite Netflix show for hours on end instead of engaging? emotional work and the spiritual work that requires or for you just taking one extra drink that you probably didn't need to have or for you chasing that promotion uh, when you even don't need the pay raise or whatever that thing is that you're like I'm gonna this is what's going to save me I think Mark chapter 13 demands look out for other things presenting themselves or other people presenting themselves as your Messiah sometimes they're good things could be your spouse it could be the ministry you feel called to it could be church It could be a pastor and you put your faith in that person that thing that dream and eventually it's frustrated you because it's not been able to deliver on its purpose Tim Keller has a prayer record he says Lord I worry because I forget your wisdom I resent because I forget your mercy I covet because I forget your beauty. I sin because I forget your holiness. I fear because I forget your sovereignty. You always remember me. Help me to remember you. So oftentimes the things in our life that bring destruction, that tear apart relationships, are really our attempt to find a source of rescue, a messiahship in something or someone else that cannot deliver on it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew quite a bit about standing in his faith for Jesus in the midst of opposition, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship says, no, God and the world, God and its good and incompatible, goods are incompatible because the world and its goods make a bid for our hearts, and only when they have won them do they become what they really are that is how they thrive and that is why they are incompatible with allegiance to god our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion and we can only cleave to one lord the world and its good makes a bid for your hearts but our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion. And so I think Mark 13 for me, as I've been sitting with this, has not only been like, stand, stand in your love for Jesus in the midst of that, but also it's made me just think like, what are the other things in my life I've been looking towards, other people in my life I've been looking to like you, you save me you give me identity, you give me security, you give me provision, you give me hope, you give me whatever that thing is that we're chasing, and all along Jesus is saying, listen, there will be other things presenting themselves as Messiah, and ultimately that will only be fulfilled in Jesus, which leads to our last theme, that we need to be watchful and hope towards Jesus. Mark 13 verse 32 says this, and by the way, this is where we believe, I believe, and many others believe there's a shift where he starts speaking about, about his coming again. He's no longer talking about event that happened at the temple, but ultimately him coming again. It says, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servant in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch that last word watch is the very first word that jesus began this teaching with it seems to be the thread that ties everything together what does jesus want from us watch live in such a way that's looking intently at jesus's return and i have to i have to pause right here because i do want to talk a little bit about the second coming of jesus him coming back the end of all things because it tends to be in my opinion within christianity and those who follow jesus there tends to be these two different streams we get pulled into one is there is an underemphasized eschatology meaning we don't like to think about end times we don't like to think about jesus coming back it kind of ruins our happy hour it kind of ruins our time surfing it kind of ruins my plan to get married next spring or to get that promotion or go to that grad school or we have these plans, we have these desires, and Jesus coming back just kind of of messes with those a little bit. And and sadly, this is largely what I find with young people, that people who still feel very much that life, there's still life to be had, that somehow Jesus coming back will rob them of life, which let's just dig into that a little bit more. Just think about that for a second. If that's you, and, and to be honest, this is probably where I land. I, I don't think enough about Jesus' coming. And I just began to think about, well, if Jesus came back, what are the things I'd want to do before he comes back? What are those things I'm longing to do? I remember growing up as a teenager, I remember literally praying, like, Jesus, come back, but please let me get married first. Maybe it's like, Jesus, come back, but like, let me just take this vacation real quick. Or whatever that thing is and there's a reason why you don't long for his return and it's probably because you have been sold a promise that there's something on this side of heaven that can fulfill you in a way that jesus coming can't and so just think about that a little if maybe for you like like i i if i want to do a b or c like i want to get married before jesus comes back maybe your desire for marriage is actually pointing towards your desire of intimacy and belonging. Can I tell you something? Jesus will provide more intimacy and belonging with his with his presence to you than a marriage ever will. Maybe for you it's a vacation. Like, oh, I just want to rest and I wanna just enjoy this. Can I tell you? Jesus' return promises more rest and more enjoyment than a vacation ever will maybe it's maybe some sort of achievement a goal a dream can i tell you that sense of significance that sense of purpose will be fulfilled even more so in jesus returning and so i just i want to call if that's you i want to call you to reorient your desires that whatever you're longing for here on earth is a shadow of what jesus promised to ultimately brings at the renewal of all things we don't know jesus says he doesn't even know when that day will come but i can tell you for those who have been adopted into that family for those who recognize who jesus truly is then that should make our hearts burn the the early church adopted this aramaic phrase maranatha and it means the Lord is coming, or it means come, Lord Jesus. And it slowly began to take the place of the Jewish greeting of Shalom. And so within the early church, when you would greet someone in the midst of severe persecution, in the midst of famine, in the midst of uncertainty, you would look at your brother or sister in the eye and you would say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. And yet here we are, two thousand years. Later, many of us living in a beautiful city by the coast, and many of us don't cry Maranatha. Many of us just say, I just can't wait for this next thing, this next event. And we have settled for a counterfeit joy, a counterfeit purpose, and a counterfeit love. And if we truly could get a glimpse of who Jesus is, our hearts would Burn with that cry please come jesus now make the wrong things right make the things out of order according to your beautiful order fulfill our joys and our dreams and our desires and for those of you who have an underrealized eschatology i encourage my encouragement is that today you would find your heart longing for the return of christ But there's another group. There's another group within Christianity that I would argue has an overemphasized eschatology. And by overemphasized, it doesn't mean that they're longing too much for his return. It means that their longing for his return has resulted in some sort of spiritual hibernation or spiritual incubation where they try and hide away and they study dates and charts and theories and all the while they forget that there are those around them who desperately need the love of Jesus. If your passion for the return of Christ does not result in your passion for loving your neighbor, then you have an over-realized eschatology or a misdirected eschatology. The return of Christ should move us out, not in. It should move us towards the other, not towards those who are like us. It should move us towards mission and not fear. It should move us towards passion and worship and devotion because when he returns everything will be set right and in the meantime we are called to have that same vision this sermon got me thinking a lot about J.R. Tolkien's work of Lord of the the Rings and his last book in the trilogy is called The Return of the King one of the last scenes of this story these two characters meet each other Eowyn is, a, is a, a female royal fighter. Her dream is to fight wars where women were not allowed to go. And as a result, she secures one of the greatest victories in the story. And after this victory, she comes and she meets Faramir, who was also a uh, high-ranking uh, a figure in the story who also in his own battle came very close to death. And as they meet and eventually fall in love, there's this dialogue in this book, The Return of the King. It says, Then you think that the darkness is coming, said Eowyn Darkness unescapable? Which I think a lot of times is what people think of when it comes to the end time. Do you think darkness unescapable is coming? No, said Faramir, looking into her face. It was but a picture in the mind. I do not know what is happening. The reason of my waking mind tells me that great evil has befallen and we stand at the end of days, but my heart says nay and all my limbs are light and a hope and joy are come to me and that no reason can deny. Listen to this last line, love this. In this hour, I do not believe that any darkness will endure why do we long for the return of the king because in that hour no more darkness will endure any darkness that has marked your life your past any darkness that haunts your future when we continue to align our hearts with the return of the king we like Faramir, can say in that hour i do not believe that any darkness will endure and that's our prayer that when we read mark through 13 that it would not res- it would not move us towards a sense of anxiousness or worry but rather it would do three different things number one it would allow you to stand firm in your love for jesus whatever is going on I, I cannot urge you enough stand firm secondly know that there are other messiahs in your life vying for your affection and your devotion your faithful devotion belongs to jesus alone And lastly, may we be a people with watchful hope towards the return of our King. Would our hearts burn with those words, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come, set the injustice right, mend the brokenhearted, restore beauty to where there is chaos. Come Lord Jesus, come. Father, we just pray that you would just begin to stir our hearts towards the reality written to a church 2,000 years ago that desperately needed encouragement. Would it bring courage to our hearts? Well, God, that no matter what has come or what will come, Lord Jesus, you are faithful. You care for your bride enough that you would even warn a church 2,000 years ago to flee the city when they saw these signs. Lord, that you care enough or jesus not to leave us in this place of darkness and chaos but to come back to this place to restore the renewal of all things and lord we just pray that the things we've been chasing and craving and longing for would be redirected back to you jesus you are the bread of life lord you're the living water and so lord as a church we just pray come lord jesus come come quickly Lord that you would allow us in our waiting to be about your business in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information please visit our website lightsandiego.com